0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, for the chance to be here. Lord, uh, as we open your word now, speak to us about Jesus, that he would be Lord of our lives. In in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So the real question today, the question that matters is the one you see on the screen. It's really what we're gonna be focused on. Do you call Jesus Lord? Now that, that term, Lord, well, yeah, of course I call Jesus Lord because that's a synonym for Jesus, right? That's kind of where our minds go with this. We've become accustomed to that word being associated with Jesus. But, but in truth, we've kind of lost track of the meaning of that word. It doesn't really have a lot of meaning in our context. We don't live in a day where there are lords. What does it mean for us to call Jesus Lord. Well, we're going to work our way through that, but to get there, we're going to go to the book of Mark, and we're going to start in chapter 1. Now, we're in our spring series, and this is the series where we also do small group studies. So, we've done up the studies, and each week you'll find the next one on the website. And if you're a part of a group, you've already wrestled with this passage and some of these, uh, some of these verses and some of these ideas. But we're in the Book of Mark. The series title is remarkable. It's all from the Book of Mark, and it's it's stories of Jesus doing remarkable things. Now it's pretty easy to do that out of the Book of Mark because the Book of Mark is all about action and activity and motion. Uh, pretty much, if you read it in Greek, almost every verse starts with the word chi, and in Greek that word means and. If he turned this in to an English professor as his term paper, he would constantly get marked off for starting every sentence with the word and. But he's telling the story, and it's just pouring out of him one after another after another. And he will attribute emotion to Jesus at times when no one else does. And he talks about how everything happens suddenly and then immediately after, and it's just moving. It, it's as though it were written by an energetic young man, which he probably was when he wrote it, an energetic young man. But part of the reality of the book of Mark is we never go to Mark at Christmas, do we? because he doesn't tell us that story. He doesn't give us a genealogy. He doesn't talk about wise men. He doesn't talk about shepherds. He hardly mentions John the Baptist. He introduces who he was. He says Jesus got baptized. He mentions he went into the wilderness, and then he gets to what he really wanted to talk about. So he does all of that in the first 13 verses, and where we're gonna pick it up is chapter 1, verse 14, and we find these words. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel." So these are very significant words that Jesus speaks here. He says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. Well, what is he saying when he says the time is fulfilled? This is actually a very remarkable statement that Jesus is making. He's making reference here to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that says 70 weeks are given for your people to fill up the prophecy and to anoint Messiah the Prince. And it says specifically in there, "After 69 weeks and seven weeks, so, uh, 62 weeks and seven weeks, so, so all but seven years of this prophecy, then shall Messiah the prince be anointed." And Jesus is literally saying to them, "That time is up, and I'm here." It's bold. And then he says, "The kingdom of God." is at hand, which is very true, but also very unclear to the people at the time because their thinking was the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God means the point where the nation of Israel becomes great again like it was in the days of David. Have you ever noticed how when you get a single thought in your mind about something, how hard it is to get rid of that thought even after it's clear that's not reality? Well, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to happen throughout Jesus' time. He's declaring that the kingdom of God has come, but everybody's looking around and saying, I still see Romans. But that's not what it was about. All the way to the end of Jesus' life, he dies, he's resurrected, he's having his last conversation with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they say to him, is it now you're going to establish the kingdom? They still didn't understand that the kingdom Jesus came to establish was not like the kingdoms of the world. But He says the kingdom of God is at hand, and then He gives them instructions on two things they're supposed to do. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. So these are bold things that Jesus is saying. Does He have sufficient authority to say these things. Well, I believe Mark sets out at this point to demonstrate to us, to tell us very clearly that after making this claim, Jesus also clearly demonstrated he had the authority to say these things. In fact, I believe that in the next verses we'll see four demonstrations of the authority of Jesus that establish his right to make this statement at the beginning. And the first one begins in verse 16, and it goes like this. And as he walked, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who, were, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has encountered these guys. You wouldn't know that from Mark because he doesn't give you a background to it. But if you've read in John or some of the other Gospels, you know that there was an interaction. Andrew meets Jesus, John seemingly with him. They go and find out about him. Uh, Andrew goes and tells Peter… This is all during the time of John the Baptist. But that has passed. They've met Jesus. They know a little bit about him, but, but they haven't been with him. He's been in the wilderness. And then Jesus appears in Galilee. And one day, walking along the sea, he comes to Andrew and Peter, who are doing their job. And he says to them, leave that behind and follow me. What kind of authority would someone need to have that you would believe that they have for you to walk away from your security and the life you've known to follow him? And he goes on, and he comes to James and John, and he says, follow me. And they leave their father in the boat and follow Jesus. I want to suggest to you that what's revealed here is there was something powerful in the call of Jesus. That Jesus had the authority to call people from the life they'd known to the life He had appointed for them. And I want to take that a step further. Jesus still has that authority right now because He has called every one of you from the life you've known to the life He has for you. It's authority in the voice of Jesus. So that's the first authority he demonstrates, the authority to call. But now we go on, verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, you see, you hear his words there, immediately. They didn't just go into Capernaum. They went in and immediately they went into the synagogue. That's Mark. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So what is what's being said here? Well any tradition, any religious tradition group it gets together, They over time they get into norms of how things are taught, and they get into accepted authorities. And so people that get up and talk will reference the accepted authority to give basis to what they're saying. Any group will do this. And what had developed within Judaism at this time was they would read the Scripture and then someone would get up and talk about what the authorities have said about the the scripture so rabbi so-and-so says this about this text and rabbi so-and-so says this about the text and they would go on and on and on and it took a really bold preacher in those days to get to the end of what everybody said and then suggest something of their own you just didn't do that but Jesus didn't teach that way if you want the best example that we have In written form of how Jesus taught it's Matthew 5 through 7 the Sermon on the Mount and if you read that you will see in that nowhere where Jesus is calling on the authorities except in one way and I'll tell you that in a minute but you but he comes out and says blessed are those who he just says it and he walks through the Beatitudes and he goes into the teachings and then he does reference authority but he does it differently he goes like this you've been told that it's this way but I tell you it's this way this was a revolution this blew their minds they said what is this he teaches like he has authority so this is the second demonstration he has authority to call And he has authority to teach. He does not need a reference to back him. All right, what comes next? Verse 23. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, as we reflect on that little short piece there, does it surprise you to think that there was someone in the synagogue with an unclean spirit? It, it, it's kind of foreign to us because we're, we're uh, modernists in our thinking or, or we're, we're recovering modernists who have become postmodernists. which I'm not sure we're doing better with that, but whatever. We don't think that way. We, we attribute everything to natural cause. And, and, and we've profited from that. We've learned a lot of things by doing that. But, uh, you know, we'd attribute things to, to chemical imbalance or psychological issues or things related to our childhood or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that's not true. But neither am I saying there's no such thing as an unclean spirit. And also I'm saying it shouldn't be so shocking to us that someone with that would be in the community of believers. Because have you ever come to church with an unclean spirit? Have you ever come to church mad at someone and brought that spirit in with you? Have you ever come with unforgiveness in your heart? Or have you ever, while sitting in church, been consumed with jealousy? So it's not so out of the realm of possibility that these things happen, but we're not used to it being confronted this way. But there's a second issue here that I think is very significant in this passage. So there's an unclean spirit in a man. Jesus comes in and the spirit inside of him cries out and says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. And the shocking thing about this is there's, there's only one group on earth that was incapable of immediately identifying who Jesus was. Humans. Evil spirits knew. The second they saw him, they knew who he was. How about animals? Did they know? Hey, fish, I want you to grab a, a coin, put it in your mouth, and then get caught by Peter. Or, hey, all you, I want you all to swim in the net in the middle of the day. Oh, okay, Jesus. They knew, right? What about the donkey? Never been ridden before. Jesus sits on him, and he walks in with the crowd cheering. How about the wind and the waves? Were they unclear? No, they knew who Jesus was. The only ones who didn't know were The humans. Everything else understood, Jesus has authority. So he's got authority to call. He's got authority to teach. He has authority over demons. What else does he have? Verse 29. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's got his followers. They're there together. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So there it is again, authority over demons. But what other authority has he demonstrated in this passage? Jesus has authority over disease. The mother-in-law was sick. He said, you're not sick anymore. He had authority. And he demonstrated that authority in the presence of the people. And the people were amazed. Now, the name traditionally given in, in English... To someone who has authority is Lord. Now there's a lot of different words in a lot of different languages, but that's, that's an English word, and, it, and it's still even left over for us in this day. In England, you have the House of Commons and the House of Lords, Right? So a lord traditionally was someone who had authority over land or over over people or something like that. in those days, the church leaders were, were called lords. Maybe that's not a good thing to bring back. Maybe we better leave that alone. But they were. They actually had a seat in the house of lords. They were very important people. A definition of the word lord for today is this. It's someone or something having power authority or influence." When you say Jesus is Lord, do you think about that word in that way? A Lord was someone you obeyed. We don't function like that. We don't think like that. But that's what that word meant. There's an interesting saying of Paul found in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying there is is to truly, anybody can just mouth those words, but to truly say those words and truly mean it is a conviction of the heart that comes about by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's that power to call. Jesus calls and we confess that he is Lord. It's the Spirit working in us. So so in light of Jesus' demonstration of his authority, in light of the reality that a Lord is someone with authority, I bring you the original question again. Do you call Jesus Lord? Maybe another way to say it that makes it a little more clear is to say, do you give Jesus authority over your life? There are a lot of people who call Jesus Lord, but don't necessarily mean it. Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 6. Beginning in verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say." So do you understand that saying better now? If Lord means the person you obey, why do you call me Lord and not obey? It's a fair question, isn't it? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. Do you notice the two pieces there? Hears and does. Whoever hears my word and does it, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." So what he's saying here is, in your life, you're going to have challenges. But if you've heard the word and obeyed it, when those challenges come, your life is going to hold up. You're going to be able to withstand the challenges. but. If all you did was hear my words and you didn't put them into practice in your life, the storms of life are going to come and they're going to crush your life. Now, this doesn't apply to any of us because none of us ever have any storms or troubles in our lives, right? I will guarantee you that each one of us will have at least one major crisis every year. Some of you are are on the monthly plan. You just. Keep having them. If you hear the word of the Lord and put it into practice in your life, when those inevitable crises arise, you will be able to stand. But if all you're doing is listening and not obeying, not putting into practice the words, then count on every time a crisis comes getting flattened. Matthew chapter 7, we hear this again. This is, in fact, right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you hear it again? Not everyone who just says the word, but it's the one who who hears and obeys. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What he's saying is it's not enough to just hang around the word. It's not even enough to be really effective in the church if you don't have that personal connection with Jesus where he is in fact Lord of your life and you are seeking to align your life with what he is telling you then you are a worker of lawlessness even if to us you look like an ideal member he goes on after this and he tells that same story about the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. And it it ends with these words, verse 28. And so it was, this is the wrap-up of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at His teaching for He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. There it is again. He told them reality. Luke chapter 13 comes back to this same idea. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus talking, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now here's what you need to hear in this. He tells this story in the context of of Israel and he had walked in the streets of Judah with the people in the streets of Jerusalem and they had eaten with him, yet at the end they had not put their faith and trust in him. And he's giving them a warning, saying, you have not known me, and I have not known you, even though I've been with you all this time. And the caution to us becomes, here we are. How many times have you been in this space? How many times have you heard the the commands of Jesus taught, the commands of God taught, the teachings of Jesus come to you? You've had occasion to hear. But have you put it in practice in your life? Now the next verse is very powerful and it links back to what we talked about last Sabbath. Do you remember last Sabbath we talked about the Syrophoenician woman? That Jesus traveled up and and he's with his disciples and the disciples think that this woman who's not part of the covenant should not be involved and, and Jesus needs to not help her. But the woman has great faith. Do you remember what she says? She says, yes, Lord, I don't need a seat at the table. There is enough for me in the crumbs that fall. Just let a crumb fall from the table. And that's all I need. And Jesus says, you have great faith. Well, listen to this text. It says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourself thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of heaven. You know who you are? You're the ones from the east and the west, and the north and the south. And because the grace of God is so good, you don't have to sit under the table. He's given you a seat at the table next to Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So, I wanna, what I want to say to you is you are blessed. You've been told about Jesus, and you've been taught. His commands. Probably more than practically any generation that has ever lived on the earth, you've been told about Jesus and taught his commands. You have one of these. This thing is full of Jesus' words and the teachings of God. I probably have 15 of these in my office. We probably have 30 at home. If that's not good enough, I can go on my computer. And if that still doesn't work, I'll just use this guy, right? Never in the history of the world have a people had more access to the words and commands of God. But probably never in the history of the world have a people with so much access been so ignorant of what is here? Or so disobedient to the word? One of the things we've always said is Adventists is one of our favorite lines, here is the patience of the saints. Here is the hupomone of the saints. Here are they who what? Keep the commandments of God, have the faith of Jesus. That's that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed is the one who hears my word and puts it in practice. You've been given all these things. By believing in Jesus Christ, we are saved. By making him Lord of our life, our lives are transformed. Jesus calls every one of us from the life where he found us to the life he longs to give us. And the way you get from here to here is to make Him Lord, to do what He says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, you find these words. It says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. What price did God pay for you? The price of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, then that is the price that has been paid for you. You've been bought. You are no longer your own. You are now the sons and daughters of God. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to the Lord now. Why do you belong to the Lord? Because Jesus paid it all for you. Is he Lord? of your life. Not just a title, but the authority that you obey. As we close today, we're going to sing that hymn, Jesus Paid It All. But before, before we sing it all together, I want to remind you of the words of the chorus. Jesus paid it all, All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's powerful words, isn't it? It's a reminder why he's Lord. So powerful, in fact. I want these to stay with you. So, Will, I want you to give us that note. Before we sing it properly with the big organ, we're going to sing it a cappella, just this chorus. So give us that note. All right, you got that? Jesus paid it all, all to him my owe.